He brought a charm to it that made him seem less dangerous somehow. You know, Sloane Crosley, the writer, she put it so well. She was like, it's like if a sloth was coming very slowly to unhook your bra. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to We Can't Print This, a podcast telling the story you don't know behind the story you do. I'm Fiona McCann. And my name is Eden Don. And every week, we interview a writer of some kind or another about the stories behind their stories. This week, we have a very fun episode. You and I liked this week a lot because yes, we did. Our guest is Melissa Mares, who we adore. Melissa has been an editor at Spin, at Rolling Stone. She was a staff writer for Entertainment Weekly and the LA Times. She's the founder of New York Magazine's Vulture website. But we are here to talk about all right, all right, all right. The oral history of Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused where we get into talking about celebrity interviews as she interviewed over 150 people as we are now hitting the 30th anniversary of this film. Because that film was like a celebrity bonanza. It is. A smorgasbord. Would you say there was a myriad of celebrities? I would say there were myriad celebrities. (laughs) We're in a fight about the use of the word myriad. Okay, so... I'm right. Let's talk about celebrity interviews because... Let's not even try to pretend to be cool. We we love doing celebrity interviews. Yes. Yeah, we love it. Some are so charming where the second you talk to them or see them in person, you just like understand why they're famous. And there are other people, which I'm not going to name, where you see them and you're like, you got famous? How, yeah, how, how did, how how did, did you? Was it camera thing? What the? What? Did you know someone? It just doesn't come through. Sometimes I wonder, I wonder, do any of them ever remember me? Answer, no. But I will say, well, so one of the things about the interview setup, a lot of the celebrity interviews that I've done have been done in a very particular setup, which anyone who's ever interviewed a celebrity will know about. The Awkward 15. The Awkward 15. Mm -hmm. The hotel room. And often, because I worked for the Irish Times when I did these a lot, you got flown over to London because a lot of these celebrities did all their publicity in one place. And they won't go to Ireland. Yeah, although... (laughs) Some of them will, but a lot of them wouldn't. And so you fly over to this hotel and you, you're you carted up to this green room where there's always lovely biscuits and things. And you have a few lovely biscuits and you meet some other journalists and they're, you're like, oh, I'm That's here for fun. the Guardian. Oh, you know, and there's always a few other Irish people there and you're kind of sizing it all up. And then it's like 15 minutes with each one. And that poor celebrity is stuck in a poor celebrity. Yeah, poor, oh. They're just like us. Yeah, let's take a minute for the celebrity. Let's pour one out for the celebrity. But it must be so difficult to be... It must be difficult, actually, to try to stay charming for that long while people ask you the same question over and over and you try to give them a slightly different quote so that each person can have their own little bit for their publication. I do think it seems tedious. I'm on the side of the celebrity. Yeah, me too. We're all in the same boat. That leads into me thinking about my favorite celebrity interviews. And here I I was thinking about it when I was coming to meet you and the tie that binds everything together for my favorite celebrity interviews is I was always. Uh (laughs) Oh, what What were you always? It's always in it. This sounds, this makes me sound like such a creep. I'm not a creep, but it was always me. In bed talking to gay men. This has been <laughs> this has been the tie that it binds for all of my okay, because Isaac Mizrahi, 
Okay. Tim Gunn and Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall. Those are like some of my three favorite interviews in my career. And they have all ended up like one in the pandemic where I was just trapped up in my room because my husband had the downstairs to do his Zoom calls. And then you said, I'll take the bed, baby. (laughs) I mean, that was my office for like two years. One being when I had just like the worst flu, but was not going to give up my chance to interview Scott Thompson, which if you know anything about my sense of humor, it is perhaps too much defined by my childhood of watching kids in the hall. So All of these times, and maybe by the time I interviewed Isaac Mizrahi, I just figured out, I think I'm better if I'm laying down. Like, yeah. but I just have to get in position, Isaac. Sorry. <laughs> I just have to hold on. Sorry. I just like went to fashion school because of watching your movie. Let me get laid out and tuck myself in. But the thing about it is you can't kind of be pompous and too on, I feel like, if you're laying in bed. So That's there was true. something about a very real conversation and perhaps it was because I, and I had. Can I just make clear that they weren't in the room with you for any of oh. these, right? I just want to make this clear <laughs> because it does. No, they were all. It they could were. be interpreted that you're inviting all these people into your bed. And I just want to make that clear, not physical. No, every single one of those okay. was a phone interview, <laughs> which are you're having to get over the awkwardness of a phone call and you're having to become friends quite quickly. And I like to think my charm is better in person because of my winking skills. Which you have great winking thank skills. Thank you. Wink. That was a good one. Uh, I missed that. They don't translate to a phone call. And on a phone call, I'm afraid like I just sound like an overactive Muppet, basically. <laughs> it's well, off-putting. I'm not saying the winking undoes that either. <laughs> but. So I feel like there's just something you have to get across. And all of them became very real conversation. You know, Tim Gunn and I both were fashion educators for a long time. I taught fashion at the college here. And obviously, he did. So we like got to talk about that and... Scott Thompson and I had a very real conversation about coming out in the 80s and being punk rock. But you were in your bed. But I was in bed laying down. Yeah, I was in pajamas. So you're like, uh, let us talk. I'm a fashion educator in my pajamas. I didn't tell any of them I was (laughs) in my pajamas. I actually might have told Isaac Mizrahi because I felt like I was very stuffy and apologizing for like, Isaac, I've always loved your work so much like that kind of. Oh, that kind of stuffy. I thought you meant like I was pompous stuffy and I was like, wait, we just discussed you're in your pajamas. No, I was not pompous stuffy. I, I, yeah, I was stuffed up. So perhaps we should start doing this podcast in our jammies in bed. No, but we have this lovely studio. Should we lay down? Let's lay down. (laughs) (laughs) Here is the thing about a celebrity interview, if if you have not done them. I feel like every celebrity, the bigger the celebrity, the greater this is true. Every celebrity comes in with a bit of uh, armor on. Which, yes, they should, maybe. As they absolutely should, particularly in a day when they're constantly critiqued, judged, everyone's commenting on them, that they come in with that wall up. Mm-hmm. and your job is to attempt to get past that in some way. And the thing I really liked about our conversation with Melissa is having to you know, talk with all of these people 25, 30 years after this movie was made and this experience, this formative experience, and get people to talk about emotional times, exciting times, times that were hard, all of this stuff. Like that's so much. That's so much energy and effort. And I feel like if you've read the book, which if you haven't, you should. She does such a 
good job of it. And I don't know if anybody else could have done it the way that she does it. No, it's extraordinary. And and the fact that she got people to really open up, people that I'm sort of surprised they even granted an interview to her, and yet she really, I think she really prized the whole thing open. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. Have fun. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. You do the all right, all right, all right so much better than I do. People ask me to do it all the time, and I just can't do it. This is the embarrassing theater kid in my heart who's just like, an accent? Let me give it a go. It was not good, but you are very kind. brilliant. Can you imagine me saying it? It wouldn't work at all. (laughs) All right, all right, all right, everybody. Folksy in a different way. Folksy in a different way. Not really channeling Matthew McConaughey there at all. Um, I'm so excited to have you here and talk about this book. Let's begin with telling me how you were able to get the director, Richard Linklater, to sign on for this book. Because without him, there is no book. Yeah, without him, there's not even a proposal. I mean, they wouldn't have considered my proposal if he hadn't agreed to be interviewed. Um, And let me tell you, I don't know if this would work with any other director the way I did this. I was very lucky because I just cold emailed him. Well, wait, had you? Sorry, I'm going way back. No, go ahead. Had you just sat down one day and thought, do you know what I'm going to write? For my next book, we're going to, like, how did you decide on this? Well, I've been talking about it for years with my literary agent. We've been kind of talking about, like, why has no one done, like, a longer book about this? Because I'd read some of the stories and just smaller versions, just the stuff I'd read in magazines. Um, and I knew there were deeper stories there because I'd read that the cast all stayed together at the same hotel. And I thought that alone has yes. got to give some stories. Like the Olympics, where yeah. they all get up. Yeah. <laughs> or summer camp. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So also I've been thinking like about it for account. a while. Okay. Yeah. So you're I'm, thinking, I need to get Richard Linklater. So you just email Richard Linklater at AOL.com <laughs> and cross your fingers it works. Well, I had his direct email at his production studio. And, um, you know, I just thought, I don't, you know, I didn't expect him to respond, but I thought I'm just going to write him and, you know, say kind of what my vision is for this book. And, you know, I think it was like two days later, he actually directly wrote me back, which was shocking. Or did you like spend ages over that email? I would have been like crafted it forever. Like, yeah, well, oh I woke up and I saw his name, you know, in my inbox and I thought, oh my God, my heart was something. Um, and it was such a great email because the whole beginning was kind of, oh, I can't believe people still want to read about this movie. It's not my best movie. I'd say it's middling <laughs> at best. You know? But then by the end of it, it was kind of like, but I want to support people who are, you know, working on their passion projects. I like to support artists and writers who are just doing stuff because they want to. And then at the end, it was kind of like, and have you seen this behind the scenes documentary about it? And have you read my diary that I wrote in the Austin Chronicle? And kind of leading me to some sources. So he basically said, yes. But, but he went on a journey in that email, yes, it sounds he like. He all <laughs> emotional. He was like, no, no, we're done with this. But also by the very end, yes. Yeah, but the yes was kind of like, okay, what is that yes to? I mean, it was yes to a single interview, right? Uh-huh. And you know at any time that can change. So he, I think he said, if you want to tell other people that I'm on board with this, you can. What a genius um, man. Oh, that is He's very lovely. gracious. Yeah, and I and so honest. You know, I mean, that's something that I feel is very true for him throughout is that he just kind of talks the way he thinks. 
Oh, that's so, that's really winning, actually. Yes. <laughs> what a generous man. Yeah. So you set the first interview. How long is that first one? Tell us about it. So this is the weirdest thing. Um, before I got the main cast, I just wanted to get as many archival materials as I could to just of kind course. of do some research. And I'd randomly seen that this guy was the unit publicist on the film and thought, you know, maybe he still has some publicity materials from back then. So I wrote him and this guy wrote me back immediately it was like, call me right now. I stayed at the hotel with the cast. Um, I have all what? sorts of things to say. So I didn't expect to interview him. I just thought I would see if he had materials. And I kid you not, he kept me on the phone for three hours. Oh, that's amazing. God. And he remembered everything. I mean, at first I was kind of like, is this guy really remembering this stuff? Or is he kind of embellishing? And every single thing he said checked out. It was incredible. I was so lucky that I talked to him. Wow. Those are the people as a journalist or a dream to interview. Yeah. Because anyone who remembers things, you're like, great, be my best friend. Well, and I think unlike a lot of other movies, it was a lot of people's first project, including this guy who was the unit publicist. And a lot of people got out of the industry afterward. Right. So it's the thing they really remember. It's not like they worked on 500 films. Right. And it's such a formative thing then for all of yes. them. Wow. And everyone was very young. Yeah. Everyone was so young. And also, they just don't make movies that way anymore. The cast yeah. was there for months together, staying in the same hotel, yeah. right? And they had this big even rehearsal time to just bond and yeah. be together. And it's, it's a huge cast of really young people as well. I mean, it's sort of an unusual cast in that sense. Or maybe it isn't. I it don't know. It sounds so fun. Yeah. I mean, you look at all the people they turned down to get like Matthew McConaughey and Ben Affleck, you know, it's like Claire Danes and Alicia Silverstone and like basically every major actor and actress at that time auditioning for the same roles. And the people they got were unknowns at the time. They didn't, oh, Claire Danes must be very upset about that. Well, he got her later. Link later got her later. He told me that he actually sent her a letter later. It was like, man, you know, you would have been great in that role, but it wasn't the right time. <laughs> wasn't and, it? You know. Timing is everything. Yeah. So when you first interviewed him, you got your unit publicist, you get like a little bit more of the information, and then you go to Rich first. Yeah, so I wanted to wait a little while. I got a lot of the main cast first. Okay. Um, and then they were having a Dazed and Confused screening and kind of like reunion type thing in Austin. So I thought I'll go down and get them there. Um, Did they have them all the time or was that just a... They've definitely had every 10 years. I think they might have had a couple of five-year ones. Because so it came out in 92. 93. It was shot in 92 and came out in 93. 93. Yeah. So oh we're coming God. upon... The, 30? Yes. I know. Isn't that crazy? Oh. So this is like a little family, though. They all get together all the time. That's also unusual for films, isn't it? Yes. I mean, not the whole cast. Um, okay. You know, there's less of them. But it was interesting because Wiley Wiggins, who plays Mitch, I just had a great interview with him while I was in Austin before I had talked to Linklater in person for the first time. And I remember the first thing Linklater said to me as he was kind of walking up for this interview is, Wiley told me you were so nice, he didn't know whether I should trust you. Oh. <laughs> and he said it in kind of a jokey way, but in also a kind of like... Raising gonna, my eyebrows. Yes, yeah. we're, we're going to see about this. Oh, wow. <laughs> this book is so interesting for, for the person who hasn't read it because it's in this oral narrative of people telling their stories. So having to kind of go through these things where you're talking with people about their different versions of history, but it felt a little bit like I imagine you having to kind of be therapist 
in some ways, like therapist, but journalist, sort of friend. Like, how do you navigate that? And I'm sure you must have felt that the emotions there. I like yeah. see it in the quotes. Yeah. Well, a lot of people cried. I mean, people that you might not have expected to cry, cried. Um, you know, I think it's in some ways it's like someone interviewed you about your high school years or about your first major job or something like that. It automatically takes you back to kind of an emotional place. Right. Um, and at first I struggled with, you know, some of the gossipy parts of it, like who was getting high and who was hooking up with who and like, does this really belong in a film book? Yeah, but don't you know, skip those bits though. Yeah, yeah we please, <laughs> we really want, who was getting high and who was hooking up with you? And but, did Ben Affleck cry? who cried now I want to know who well cried. I'm not gonna like a, I'm not gonna out who cried but ben. Um, ben Affleck, ben. he did not cry <laughs> but a lot of other people did um, and people in the crew did I kept that stuff in there ultimately because it's a movie about high school and I think a lot of them felt like the experience was like high school for sure and um, I just felt like it was a true thing to have this gossipy tone where people are like oh she said this I didn't say that this girl said this or like you know what I mean that everyone's kind of contradicting each other and it's also the tone of the movie, right? It's like people talking over each other and people having theories about things that other people contradict. Like that's what makes a Linklater movie great. This dialogue that's not a traditional dialogue. It sounds very natural and kind of um, the way a real conversation in high school would. And some of these people you interviewed several times and how did that relationship change over time as you keep talking about this kind of like emotional time or this like introduction to their careers? Yeah, well, uh, most of the cast I interviewed two or three times at least. I mean, Linklater, obviously, much more than that. But the first time I talked to people, I tried to be as quiet as possible and just let people say what they wanted. And then the second time, I obviously had to get people to respond to things that other people had said about them. So I feel like, you know, there were degrees of... You can either get more guarded once you know that the interviewer has more information from other people, or you can feel more like, okay, I need to weigh in on this or else everyone else is going to have their you know, point of view recorded and I'm not going to have you know, my perspective in there. So I think people responded in different ways the more we connected for more interviews. Some people got a little bit more open and some people were a little bit more guarded. But those must have been difficult conversations as well, because sometimes you're like, hey, well, did you know that so-and-so said this? I mean, yes. was that kind of tough to be landing those things on people who are already maybe feeling, you know, emotions were stirred up by these memories? That must have been hard. I mean, I think it would have been much harder if I'd interviewed them in 1993. I oh, think yeah. people are... Um, Space. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I'm much more willing to admit things that I messed up when I was in my 20s now of course. Yeah. than I was back then. But I'm still probably going to have a different perspective than somebody who was like, oh, my God, that girl was terrible. You know, so I, I don't think that people were as upset as they might have been otherwise about some of the tougher things in the book. Because they were grownups. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you look back. It's not something when I started in journalism, I understood could happen that sort of cross over where an interview becomes more a real conversation, like an intimate conversation. And I love it. I love when you have those real moments with something, but it just is a different thing. You feel something switch yeah. in the conversation. And I feel like it seems tricky once you become a little bit protective of somebody to still write about them. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I'd use the word protective, but I feel like the more time I spent with people, 
the more I felt like I understood them. But the more you understand somebody, the more you kind of know where they're coming from and the less it is, the less easy it is to villainize them completely, yeah. I think. Which is why it's tough because someone like Sean Andrews, who played Pickford in the movie, like everybody hated this guy. I mean, there's a whole chapter in my book where everybody's just talking smack about him. And I tried like hell to get him to go on the record for the book. And he just you know, through his uh, publicist, um, wouldn't talk to me. And I know he would have come across as a much more sympathetic person in the book if he had talked to me. But in some ways, it makes him a better character um, because he didn't. You know, he's going to be forever frozen in time as the person he was in 1992. And that was his choice in that moment. Um, What did ever happen to that fellow, actually? You know, I still don't know. There's there's lots of rumors, uh, but I don't know the answer. Was I never, did I ever see him in anything after that? I don't... You know, he was in another movie. Um, he had been trying... His great project... I mean, this won't be shocking to anyone who's read my book, but, like, he obviously saw himself as a very Jim Morrison-type figure. Lots of people remembered him playing The Doors. You know, this is around the time when Oliver Stone's movie of The Doors was yes. coming out. Um, and he, I think, had always seen himself as, like, Jim Morrison. So he was part of this film project where he was actually going to play a version of Jim Morrison, but I don't think it ever came out. I'm rolling my eyes a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> as you probably should. Nobody can do it better do than that. You know Bell, that guy it? who always <laughs> thinks he should play Jim Morrison. Well, you know, like the 90s was full of that guy. I feel like mm-hmm. my high school had like 10 of them. Yes. Yeah. And I was trying to date Lovely all of them. Fellas. Unfortunately <laughs> for me. Oh my God. A terrible boyfriend. <laughs> terrible boyfriend. It really, that's just blame my lifelong crush on Val Kilmer for that one. I somehow transposed it to that. Right. That's his fault for being such a good method actor. So was he the only one who didn't um, sign on? Because it, you, you got access to so many people, which is truly impressive. Usually you, you sort of take on a project like this and you think, okay, well, if I've got, you know, this percentage of people or if these key players talk to me, you know, fingers crossed. But you had great access, but he didn't, Pickford was, didn't sign on. He didn't sign on. And there are two other people who didn't. Um, Mila Jovovich didn't sign on. Um, and uh, man, she has some stories because she ended up marrying Sean Andrews, who played Pickford. When like she was were, 16. When she was 16. Mm-hmm. And, Scandalous. Yes. And her yeah. mom got the marriage annulled. And right like, I think that she kind of got a bad rap because everybody hated her boyfriend on the, on the film. Oh. And the kind of, you know, she was the most famous person cast in the movie at the time. Like, you know, she was a model. She was coming from Return to Blue, Blue Lagoon. Yes. Yeah. She already had a level of fame that many of the others didn't have at that point. Exactly. I mean, they put her on the poster, even though she hardly has any lines in the movie. So, you know, she was, I think she, she might've had like bittersweet feelings about that movie, but she ultimately decided not to be interviewed. And the one person I couldn't find is uh, Jason O. Smith. Um, and he, you know, I, I tracked down his high school class on Facebook. You know, I asked if anybody had kept in touch with him. Everyone had lost touch with him. Um, after the book came out, I put my email address in the book to be like, Jason, if you're out there, like, please contact me so that in the paperback version, I can interview you. And his brother contacted me and said that the family had kind of lost contact with him. I tried my damnedest to he, track him down. Well, even his own family can't find him, it sounds yeah. like. So yeah. wait, now remind me who he plays. He's Melvin. Let's talk about the one and only Matthew McConaughey. Yes. Because but don't say anything that makes me fall out of love with him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we will. I, I value him in a different way, actually, after reading the book. So maybe you could give uh, people listening who haven't had a chance to read the book yet a little bit of a summary of how Matthew McConaughey 
came into this film and became the Wooderson that that we know now. Wooderson. Wooderson. Yes. I mean, it's first of all, it's crazy to me. It's like in a packed cast of like Oscar winners, award winners, you yeah. know, super strong cast that he's the one that everyone remembers. And I think part of it is that he has told this origin story of getting cast in this movie over and over and over again. My book is called All Right, All Right, All Right. Um, with all the quotable lines in this movie, that this is the one thing that people remember is that line. And I think it's because he's constantly repeating it. So I kind of knew what I was going to get from him as far as that origin story. You know, he's always like, I just happened to be in this bar and there was a casting director there and we got drunk together. And he was like, I have a little bitty part in this film. He's kind of told the story over and over again. But what was interesting to me is to hear other people's perspectives that people are like, he didn't just happen to be there. I mean, I talked to the bartender. He was like, I was there. I overheard this casting director talking about casting this movie. I called Matthew knowing that he wanted to get into the film industry and was like, you'd better get down here now and talk to this guy. Other people remembered McConaughey, who was a, you know, in the film program at UT at the uh-huh, time, yeah. um, applying to be a PA as part of the movie. And some people say that maybe he was even got that job beforehand. So he knew what he was doing. And, and I he's think, crafted this story ever since. Yes. I think the story of just like, you know, I was in a Bloomingdale's when I got discovered or whatever, you know. It's Everyone has that. It's an old Hollywood story. And I think he knows the charm of that. And maybe in his mind, you know, it's true. And that he wasn't the, you know, we think of the Matthew McConaughey now, the JKL, just keep living. All this, this easy, breezy, Texas, just kind of dreamboat, cowboy meets surfer. He's like all the things, right? He really is all the things. (laughs) He's all the things. But that that was not necessarily him. That's his, yeah. he's modeling that personality or persona after his brother. Yeah, so this is the craziest thing. So they had two weeks of rehearsal before this movie where everybody was told, you're playing younger versions of yourselves. Just basically be yourself, you know, try and like bring some naturalism to these roles. And everybody said that the one person who was not at all himself was McConaughey. I mean, everybody said this guy came in, he was like a frat boy in a polo shirt. And then as soon as he became Wooderson, he just completely transformed himself into someone that he wasn't. And that was because he was modeling it on his older brother, Pat. But exactly what you said, I think after this movie, he kind of became that persona, even though that's not really who he was before. I think the word calculated has negative connotations to it. I don't necessarily think it does. Right. And I feel like this was a calculated move on his part where he saw there is a need for this type of thing. And And he spoke very highly of his brother. And even the way that he tells it now, because that Hollywood story is so simple and so lovable. And in my view, it makes me even a bit more endeared to him. Because I think that when people are easy, breezy, and sweet, and this is me bringing my own baggage to the table, where I think being an easy, breezy, fun person, people think it means that we maybe aren't professional or aren't intelligent, that those things, and it's like, oh, no, 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 no. 
Don't let the niceness fool you. We have yeah. the rest. And I like it about him. I like that he kind of was like, I won in this movie. I'll do whatever it takes. And he did it. And then he made an entire life out of it yeah. and is one of the most successful people out of that movie. Absolutely. Well, and you think about what that character could have been. First of all, it was a very, I think there were like three lines originally yeah. on the page. But I mean, the character is basically a predator, right? It's an old guy who's Super like preying on like young high school girls. But he brought a charm to it that made him seem less dangerous somehow. Like, um, you know, Sloane Crosley, the writer, she yes, put I it so well. Sloane. She was like, it's like if a sloth was coming very slowly to unhook your bra. <laughs> <laughs> Like, that's what that character is, you oh, know? It's so like, well said. Yeah. She's that, so because brilliant. I was just saying, so I rewatched it. Yeah. Um, but I I had not absorbed first time round that he was a predator. And I rewatched it last night and was like, oh, gross. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't pick up on that. I thought it was Because you walk away with the charm, which maybe even is, that's a separate conversation about predators. Yeah. Because <laughs> when they're charming, it doesn't seem threatening. Right. Which is, and it's particularly when we saw it when we were young, which also is a thing. When you're in high school, when I was in high school, I got hit on by 20-something-year-old guys all the time. It wasn't uncommon. Well, this is one of my favorite things about Dazed and Confused is that it changes depending on when you see it and how old you are. I mean, I think when I saw it when I was in high school, I thought, like, even though it takes place in the 70s, I thought, like, this is a vision of my future. You know, it was my first year in high school. I thought, this is what high school is going to be like, partying with older kids, you know, having the best time. Like, there was definitely, you know, an element of violence from the older kids in the movie, but mostly it seemed like a good time movie. And now when I watch it, it seems so sad and so wistful and so full of dangerous things that could happen to those kids but don't and you just watch it differently that was my whole takeaway last night I was watching it with my mom eyes and I yes. was like don't be climbing up that thing yeah. and don't <laughs> don't get behind the wheel of that car yes. and oh it was really I was anxious the whole time and I couldn't remember if something terrible happened I kept waiting for it to happen because I was like surely something is going to go badly wrong here and Linklater's so good at that like you see in boyhood the scene when they get him a gun for they get the kid a gun for his yes. birthday and you're like that gun is going to go off something's going to happen yeah. and it never does but like that's what childhood broke is Chekhov's rules wasn't it yes Chekhov? exactly <laughs> Chekhov's gun does not go off but that's just what high school is it's like things constantly having an element of this could go wrong but somehow it doesn't and you survive or sometimes it does but I think he's good at showing the moments when you know when it doesn't happen it doesn't happen yeah but I'm interested now in how that parallels real life because this was also such a formative moment for all of these actors and the cast and the crew and all that and then for some of them it sort of was um it was a moment that led on to a bright future and yeah. for others it was not yeah and well, and there's a whole section of my book that talks about the idea, you know, everybody says, oh, this this movie was the launching pad for all of these careers. It was not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like a lot of, they were doing Starbucks, you know, doing Pizza Hut commercials. You know, Ben Affleck couldn't get cast for a little while. Like it was just kind of like, you know, the only person it really was a launching pad for was McConaughey. And that's because he really befriended the casting director who took him in and let him live at his own house and <laughs> set him up with an agent and like did all of the above. But it took other people a little while to, um, you know, to, to have their careers go the same way that he did. And some of them never did. You know, some of them moved out 
out to Hollywood and tried to make it after that movie and could never make it happen. So, um, that's yeah. sad. I mean, I think even Ben Affleck said that Goodwill Hunting, you know, him writing Goodwill Hunting and appearing in the movie, was partly a response to the fact that he was like, everyone thought I was a total jerk. Yeah, after bully, I was yeah, his bully ties and that. Like, exactly. He was just playing a jerk all the time. All the time. So he's yeah. like, I wanted to write a role for myself that was a little deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does not play a nice fella in that. In days no, he doesn't. <laughs> but but eventually he got to be the guy in Armageddon who, right. you know, tried to save the world. He came around. Yeah. <laughs> he came it, around. It's so funny seeing it as well because, uh, re-seeing it, I suppose, I'd forgotten, you know, who these were. Prob- this was probably the first time I saw Ben Affleck in a movie as far as I can remember, like now. Yeah. Um, and I, re-watching it, I spent a lot of the time going, wait, isn't Ben Affleck in this? Because it yes. takes, takes a while before he appears. And wait, isn't Matthew McConaughey in it? It takes ages for Matthew McConaughey to appear. I mean, there's so many people in this movie. <laughs> Renee Zellweger is in this movie. Yeah. How bizarre. No lines, just walking through the background twice. So strange. <laughs> Launched her career, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting because you go back and you th- the people you th- are... It's unexpected, the, maybe the people that became famous. Yes. I mean, with hindsight's twenty twenty. So now we look back and we see Parker Posey, whom I adore. Her career is such an interesting one. Waiting for Guffman will always be one of my favorite movies of all time. And you look back and you watch it and you're like, okay, I can kind of see how this went, how Darla went to this. Yeah. But I don't, I wouldn't have predicted it with watching it. You know, there are other people maybe in that movie you might have thought were going to go off and do other things. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. Everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people feel a little let down that Linklater never cast them in anything. Again, like Parker Posey, I don't know if you read her book, but in her book, I did. She, she writes about crying. Mm-hmm. That like she really wanted to get into a particular project of Richard Linklater's and she it didn't end up working out for whatever reason. And um, she talks about crying over that. Like I think people, everyone blames Ethan Hawke for being the one who got on that train and wrote it. <laughs> He really did write it. Yeah. Look, as somebody who had a framed 8x10 of Ethan Hawke <laughs> on my nightstand in yeah. the late 90s, um, he can do no wrong. I mean, he's great. It's not, it's not <laughs> Ethan Hawke's fault that other people didn't get cast in whatever project, but I think there is he, a real he melancholy the muse, about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, one, just the tiniest segue I have to say, if you need joy in your heart, is in Parker Posey's book, when she talked about trying to rappel off the building in, I think, Blade 3, like <laughs> holding guns, and they couldn't use the take because, it's, you know, they put the noises in post, and as she was rappelling off holding her guns, she kept going, pew, 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 pew. <laughs> she couldn't stop doing it. And the director's now like, I love her more. <laughs> and I love that because that is what you would do if you're supposed to be shooting off a fake gun. Pew, right. pew, pew. And picturing her doing that in my mind just... On a dark day, bring that bring that image forward if you need it. I mean, she's so great. You know, I mean, you talk about people who other people in the movie assumed would be the ones to break out of Dazed and Confused. Everyone says that they thought McConaughey would, from the very beginning, be a big star. But a lot of people said Parker Posey. A lot of people said Jason London. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, she people described her as if she was like this grand drag queen. You know, that she just had this outsized personality, super flamboyant even back then, and that people kind of either loved. Loved her or hated her. Yeah. Love her. Love her. Love her. I love her too. Uh, In doing these interviews, who would you say was perhaps the most like you expected them to be or the least like you expected them to be? Yeah, that's a 
Good question. Let me think about it. I mean, I think I feel very lucky that Ben Affleck agreed to be interviewed for this. He has very rarely agreed to be interviewed in anything about Dazed and Confused. And I wasn't really sure how he was going to react to some of the memories that people had of him. Like some people remember him being kind of a bully. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was great. I think I was very shocked at how important this movie is to him. You know, I I think he called it the most formative, creative experience of his life. And this is a guy who's won Oscars, you know, and he only has like two posters of movies that he's done in his house and Dazed and Confused is one of them. So I was the other one though. Oh God. Um, it must be Argo. It's Argo. I think he he did say it was Argo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I mean, that was surprising to me. And, you know, he agreed early on. I got his phone number from somebody else and I was like, hey, do you want to be involved in this thing? And he was like, yeah. And then he would just never answer the phone when I called for like a year. So he finally answered the phone. (laughs) I got a friend to help me kind of lock this down. And uh, it really was an emotional experience. I think that was what surprised me, that somebody who's had such a career would still find this such an emotional experience. And also was just honest about you know, none of the girls would sleep with me. And like, nobody thought I was cute. And I had terrible hair. And like, you know. He did have terrible hair. He did have terrible hair. It was pretty yeah. bad. It's pretty but funny. nobody would sleep with Ben Affleck. Yeah, the whole yeah. chapter about everybody hooking up yeah. and all this stuff, which is so high school. And of course, this is the kind of thing that Fiona and I live for, where we're like, give us the gossip. Who made out with who? Who made out with who? And that Ben Affleck's off in the corner, like, no one will make out with me. Yeah. That's so surprising, though. Do you think yeah. it was because of who he played as well? I mean... I, you know, that's a very good point. Yes. In fact, um, you know, someone in the crew that he was really flirty with that told us that he was like, hey, I'm not this guy. I don't have this hair. This is like, <laughs> I'm not, I don't dress like this. Had to be like, that's not me. Yeah. And I think he spent a long time after that being like, this isn't me, you know. Yeah, trying to get out from O'Banion's shadow. Yes. Were you able, when you were interviewing Matthew, to get beyond any of that JK live in shell or is that just who he actually is now yeah I mean I don't think so but I I have to say I'm like he he did tell me stories I hadn't heard before but he's just kind of a human storytelling machine yeah like everything is crafted into an anecdote and every everything that he says is not off the cuff it's like there's a beginning to this and an end to this and there is like a zen cohen moral to this you know it's like He's just kind of, that's who he is. And people said that's who his dad was. You know, his dad passed away while he was making this movie. Mm-hmm. And um, he said that one of the ways he wanted to keep his dad's memory alive was just kind of, you know, keeping this just keep living attitude going. And, you know, at his dad's funeral, people talk about it in the book, that it was all people telling stories like this. Yeah. So I think that he, that's just who he is. You know, yeah. it's not him being fake. It's just like he grew up in a family of storytellers and he's just going to keep that tape rolling. Spinning a yarn. Well, and I was thinking about how some of some of them, like Matthew, I'm just calling him Matthew now. Your good um, friend Matthew. Yeah. Matt. Matt. Um, <laughs> some of them, people who went on to have like very lengthy and successful careers and probably have a lot of experience dealing with the media. And then you have people who maybe did not go on to do that and have less experience dealing with it. Did that feel different? Was there sort of a difference there when you're like, oh, now I'm talking to a superstar and this is clearly all I'm going to get because they're much better at putting the wall up? 
Well, I think you have less to lose if you're out of the industry, right? You can just talk really honestly. Oh, that's um, true too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there was less of a like self-protectiveness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, you know, for example, um, I had a really great time talking to Joey Lauren Adams and um, she was open enough with me that she sent me some artifacts from that time, like pictures of her and Parker Posey together. And like uh, one of the things that she sent me was a letter that Parker had written her on the last night of filming. And it is a wrenching letter. And she said, you can use it if, but only if Parker says it's okay. So I asked Parker, you know, I told her what was in it. I told her I could read it to her, send it to her. And she did not want it in the book. And there's nothing damning Uh, about it. It was just too close. Yeah. And it's like, what does she have to gain by putting it in there? Um, But I can describe it. (laughs) It was just a really beautiful, like, you know, the kind of letter you might give someone before like high school graduation or something like that. It was like, we had this amazing friendship and like, this was so meaningful to me, so meaningful to me. And like, I'm up at 3am writing this and I never want to lose you. And like that kind of thing. Um, and it was really just a beautiful piece, but you know, Mm. she, she didn't want it in there. Well, I mean, there's a lot that I've written when I was that age that I wouldn't want people to absolutely (laughs) even just the way you use language. I'd be like, Oh, it's mortifying. I'm so gushy. Um, (laughs) I'm curious about if there was an emotional toll on you writing this book. How were you feeling in the process? I mean, were you overwhelmed? No, because I started transcribing from the very first interview. And what I did was I, d- I didn't know what the narrative arc was going to be yet. Of course so not. I just had themes. The first question I'd ask everybody is, what do you want to talk about? Um, and the same thing came so up. Talk, who did you sleep with? That's <laughs> what I was going for. <laughs> what do you want to talk about is a very underrated journalism question yeah, because a lot of people come in and they so got smart. something to say. Yeah. And it's like, you don't even always have to craft the best. You're just like, what are we here to do? Well, it's like, you know, my husband is a writer too. And he always says, after you come back from an interview, when somebody's like, how did it go? The first thing you say, that's what you need to write about. Like oftentimes it's stuff that you're like, you didn't hear it from me, but this person was, you know, crying backstage or something like that. And like, if that's important enough to tell the person first, you need to put that in the piece. So mm. I think oftentimes people's first reaction of like, what do you want to talk about, about this experience, formative experience that you had, they're going to bring up the stuff right away without thinking about it. That's like, oh, this was important to me. And the things that came up the most were partying at the hotel, mm-hmm. you know, everyone hooking up with each other, hating Sean Andrews, who played Pickford, um, <laughs> this sense of creative freedom that everyone felt in the rehearsals where they were bringing kind of real things from their lives into the process, um, how crazy the casting process where they had this kind of fake pizza party and everyone was supposed oh to be friends, but they were really competing yes. against each other. I mean, like all of these things, and like this, this general theme of nostalgia that, you know, Richard Linklater wanted to make this an anti-nostalgia movie that was like, you know, the 70s kind of sucked. I mean, the character even, there are even characters who say the 70s suck. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that everyone has attached so much nostalgia to this movie. You know, the fans, um, it's nostalgia for the era. It's nostalgia now for the 90s when it came out. It's yeah. nostalgia for high school. It's nostal- It's the cast's nostalgia for being in this moment in Hollywood when things were really creatively free. Mm-hmm. Um, so a I'm- lot of of these things just kept coming up. This book is hefty. It's a hefty book and it is so, it covers so much. And I often read late at night, right before bed. And there were times I would be 
totally giggling and laughing at these things. I emailed you the morning after I had insomnia and was reading the hookup chapter yeah. and was just like giggling, thinking I was going to wake a shot up because I was just <laughs> giggling in bed reading it. And then there were other things that were hard to read. Yeah. People talking about how they carried hurts with them or the disappointment of, you know, you could tell their careers not going the way that they had hoped they would go. And so I, I think you did a really beautiful job of being able to call so much information together and let people ride that wave up and down, which also kind of speaks to the high school experience, right? There are good times, good times and bad times. Yeah. I mean, I think that that movie was mostly memorable in positive ways for everyone except Richard Linklater. I mean, and some of the, some of the other characters, I guess some of the other actors too, who played the freshmen. Um, but you really see, it's like, you know, um, an emotional time for Matthew McConaughey who lost his dad and kind of turned his loss of his dad into that just keep living, mm-hmm. um, you know, line, which he improvised, which was a tribute to his dad and use that to, as like a launch pad to create the persona we know today versus someone like Jason London, who just had this amazing experience making this movie, lost his sister yeah. who was very young immediately after this movie and now feels like Dazed and Confused is the marker in his life. Um, after things got pretty dark. It's like high school. Yes, it exactly. Means, you know, they're the people who peaked in high school, not one of them. I might <laughs> <not>. <laughs> um, and I, it, it did make me think a little bit about the sadness of peaking too soon. Yeah, I think when I first saw the movie, I saw Ben Affleck's character and I thought like, oh, this is the popular guy who's mean to everybody. And now I watch and I catch details I didn't necessarily catch the first time around where it's like, oh, he flunked a bunch of times. The first yeah. thing he says in the movie is that he's out of gas. So someone else has to pay for his gas. He has a terrible car. Like this guy is not going places. He's not doing life. well. And not having fun and not not a happy, I mean, obviously you could tell maybe that he wasn't a happy person to begin with, but you just get a a definite sense that he is somebody who did peak in high school and like, we'll never get that back. Mm. Uh, My last question before we have to let you go is I want to know, how did Richard view the book? Yeah. I mean, I think he was, I, I struggled with whether or not I was going to ask him to read it before it was published. And one of the reasons I ended up doing that is that he has an incredible memory. I could not believe the things that he can remember. And he was just my greatest fact checker. I mean, if anything was um, not in, not in terms of like if someone said something that he disagreed with, but he was like, you know, that happened on this day in August. Wow. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I just also wanted to see he's he's his opinion is more important to me, you know, um, because he was the one who was involved in everybody else's stories. So I think his main thing that he told me that he loved was reading about his high school friends' memories of the things that were, that inspired parts of Dazed and Confused. So I tracked down a bunch of his high school friends, some of whom have the same names as the characters, Mm -hmm. um, some of whom actually ended up suing Suing. him (laughs) um, because they thought that they had bad representations of who they were um, on screen. Everybody thinks it's about them. I think that's one of the genius things about this movie. The people from his high school all think it's about them, but also people like you and me. It's like, oh, you know, it can really relate to it. Even though it's such a specific story um, that's about his own high school life, it still feels like it's about people like you and me. It's about all of us. Yes. It's about all of us. It's about all of us. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Melissa, for coming. Uh, Go by. All right, all right, all right. Just keep living. Um, Follow Melissa on Twitter at 
Miss Melissa Mares and go get the book. That's it from We Can't Print This for today. You can see more info and we will link to the book on our website, wecantprintthis.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at We Can't Print This. And thank you to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, and to Dave Depper for our music. Deathcap is on tour all year, so go! Yeah, go see um, Deathcap for Cutie. This podcast was recorded at the Writer's Block in Portland, so we'll shout out to Monica Geller for all her support. Thanks, Monica. But the biggest thanks must go to our third work wife, Rachel Ritchie, for all her input and tolerance and putting up with two very loud people in an office with her. <laughs> if you are a writer with a great behind-the-story story, write to us at wecantprintthis at gmail.com. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so Thanks, much Melissa. for having me on. All right, all right, all right. I like the way you say it. Boom, drop the mic. God, we've loads to say. <laughs>